needs some motivation on your Chinese business endeavor, may be curious about what the Chinese business environment is all about, or want to laugh out loud listening to war stories on the ground in China. Then this is your show, China Business Cast. Welcome all to a new episode of the China Business Cast. I have a, this is a very special one because actually my first guest ever was Lina and she reached out to me to become a co-host on the China Business Cast. She actually got the guest of today's show here with us. We're actually at the same location where I did the interview with her in August 2019, actually in our home. And we have a beautiful, beautiful view over Shanghai area. I think it's Hongkou district where we are. It's an amazing place, very inspiring. But yeah, enough about the place. Let's go to uh, Lina. Lina, just maybe a brief introduction for the ones that didn't listen. Shame on you to episode 97. Why, what are you doing and why you want to join us as a China, as a co-host? Hi, Simon. Thank you for having me. So yes, shame on people who didn't listen to the episode with me. You can totally go and um, have a look uh, <laughs> and see the full story of what I do and why I'm here. But uh, long story short, I've started studying Chinese in 2006 and I came to Shanghai in 2009. And because I could speak Chinese, very soon I became interpreter for business negotiations for CEOs, uh, politicians, different governments. And um, I could see what it looks like behind the scenes. So from then till today, I was instrumental in closing more than a thousand business negotiations. And I personally know what it takes for a person to succeed in China, to survive the personal struggles, to go over the everyday hassle and um, chaos. Uh, that definitely is a part of our job here at being CEOs. Um, so I want to shine light on the people who do this job. And I know a lot of these very, very inspiring and interesting people. And I think uh, these stories should be preserved in some way. That's why I'm here. Awesome. This this podcast is all about entrepreneurship. And both Jans, Lina and myself consider ourselves entrepreneurs. So we can open up our network and the stories of entrepreneurs doing business in China, senior professionals or executives. Today's episode... We actually, it's quite interesting one. It is from one of the good friends of Lina from Latvia. She will share more later in our personal introduction. But why we do this episode is basically what a lot of companies are not aware of, that the country offices located in China can offer you a lot of value when it comes to exposure, introduction, and opening up a network that you probably will not be able to identify yourself. That's the key message of the episode today. Definitely, it will be more about uh, Latvia as well, but it will help you because you have to consider that not every country is as big as China as or the United States. There's a lot of competition if you want to enter China. So better make use of the resources that are available to give your success ratio higher than ever. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Leave a comment or a review. If you have any questions, please do reach out to us. We're happy to help you and hope you enjoy this one. Welcome to a new episode on the China Business Cast. This is a very cool one because I still remember it. Episode 97, you should check it out. I did an interview with my good friend Lina. This was August 2019. And recently she approached me and said, I know a lot of cool entrepreneurs and businessmen and women that want to share their story. So therefore, I want to be a co-host on the China Business Cast. And we support that a lot. We want more entrepreneurs to share their stories and having someone like Lina in the team to help us get reach more people is amazing. So please, Lina, welcome as well as a co-host, your first episode at the China Business Cast. And please share with me what which guests you brought on for this episode. Very excited. And today I'm very pleased to have Agnes on the episode. Or what is your real spelling of your name? So my name is Agnes Sturmana in Latvian. I also have a Chinese name. My Chinese name is Ai Sujie. And that has become a big part of my personality as well. I uh, I feel the same way when someone calls me Ai Sujie or Agnes. It's like my real name already. Okay, welcome. So Agnes Sturmana. <laughs> I can pronounce it well because I'm Lithuanian and my name is Lina Bartusevičiuta. So. <laughs> 
Lina B. I call I, I, I'm okay that you didn't pronounce my full name. Um, Agnes is actually one of my oldest friends in China, and I knew her before she even entered the MBA program. And I remember we were talking on WeChat a lot, and you were asking me questions, which university to choose, where to go, how to choose, how to know, because I was already doing my master's degree, and you were still in the process of choosing. And um, later, I saw her grow up and become a diplomat. And I was always really inspired and amazed with her dedication, energy, and willingness to do what it takes and go the extra mile. And the funny joke we have is that actually she had to do what I do and be a CEO of a company because she did a business degree. And I probably should have gone for diplomacy because I did the degree in international relations. But in the end, we see that um, it's a funny thing about friendships and about life that um, actually if you choose a different path, you can see different angles of the same story. And that actually gives more to the experience and more to the people you work with. So I'm really happy to talk to Agnes today. And thank you for agreeing to share your story with China Business Cast. So Agnes, what do you do in China right now and how is it going? So currently I'm working at the Embassy of Latvia and the Economic and Commercial Council. At the same time, I'm also a representative of the Investment and Development Agency of Latvia. And basically that's a government agency under the Ministry of Economics. And we focus in four different directions. So one being trade. So we help Latvian companies export abroad, investment, attracting foreign direct investment. We're also the National Tourism Board of Latvia and we also focus on innovation. Wow, sounds like you're a bit busy. Thank you for finding time. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's quite diverse of the directions that we work in, yes. <laughs> so just to take a one step back, um, maybe you can share how did you come to China in the first place and why? Well, that's actually it's quite of a long story. So when I was still in high school, I had a lot of interests. I always enjoyed studying languages, different cultures, history. At the same time, I really also was entrepreneurial. I enjoyed marketing, accounting, uh, mathematics. And when I was choosing what to, what, what do I want to become? I was, I was very confused, to be honest, because I liked so many things. And so I decided to study something a bit odd in Latvia, uh, to go for Asian studies, particularly Sinology as my bachelor. But with, uh, with, uh, also consideration that I will be doing masters in something absolutely different. Uh, something business related. And this is how my, my, my slow journey towards China started. It was academic, uh, starting studying this sinology. And then later, after two years of studying that, I realized, well, hmm, how am I going to graduate from Asian studies if I've never even been in Asia? I've never, uh, been to China. And so I was really actively looking for opportunities, how I can not just go there for a short holiday, but actually live there for a while. And I was also a part of a international organization called ISEC. Uh, probably a lot of listeners have maybe heard of it because it's, it's international. It's, I think, in almost all countries in the world, uh, particularly for university students. And it's an also opportunity how to go for internships abroad. And I was part of the organization. So I went for an internship to Guangzhou, which is a southern city in China. And for Which year was it? It was 2011, 2011, 2012. So literally I've been uh, 10 years out, in and out of China. And so imagine for a girl coming from a uh, 2 million country, moving to a uh, 18 million large city. It was a very interesting experience, but I also got hooked up on China. Like it was a different, um, different pace, different lifestyle. And so after a year, I went back to Latvia. I graduated from Asian studies, uh, but I also applied for a scholarship and I was lucky enough to get a scholarship from Chinese government. And that was how I, uh, ended up studying, um, MBA in China, in Xiamen University. And again, I was very lucky. Uh, Xiamen is a wonderful city. It's also in the south of China. Uh, it's a smaller city, only 4 million. So a lot of, um, a lot of foreigners maybe have not heard of the city. Um, it's a coastal city. So it's actually an island. It has mountains. It has also a beautiful city. So it was a great experience to study there for two years. So yeah, this is how I slowly, slowly, uh, moved to China. <laughs> So just to take a step back, I think um, moving to China, going to travel to China is one experience, but 
the first time you came to China, you came to work. Correct. For a Chinese company. Correct. That is helping other Chinese to go abroad, right? Correct. Correct. How did that feel? <laughs> wow. Well, <laughs> so if you ha you have to understand me, I'm very active. I'm very outspoken. And I am always trying to move towards self-improvement and self-betterment. Yes, but you had a Chinese CEO. Correct. So <laughs> this was where exactly it became tricky, right? Because um, me as this outspoken person, I'm trying to, uh, you know, give different suggestions to everyone because I feel like everybody wants to be better. Everybody wants to improve. Um, however, I had a very like traditional conservative Chinese boss uh, who was not taking that well, my very outspoken communication and feedback about how things are supposed to work in a office or how uh, how things could be done better. Uh, so I kind of learned it the tough way uh, how you're supposed to be more consider about your communication methods in China, how everything does not need to be so direct and that there's also different ways of expressing your opinion. Can you give an example of where I clashed? Well, it was it was exactly that. I was just very outspoken, and obviously these very traditional uh, bosses, where it was it was kind of an ego game for them, right? Where I would never consider it to be an ego issue, uh, but in China it is very important to, especially more traditional bosses. You know, it's it's very different. What what uh, I think in ten years also China has changed a lot, and maybe nowadays. Uh, a, giving a constructive feedback is seen also as a good thing in China. 10 years ago is way, way more traditional. So it was like the boss knows how things go and nobody is supposed to contradict that. So yeah, and my, my experience was not necessarily um, very good in that sense. <laughs> but I remember what you said is that actually it is the truth that only the Chinese boss knows where it goes because there are many things that he's not sharing. Also true, also true, also true. But however, in, I think in Western world, it, it functions a little bit differently. Like we brainstorm a lot and we consider every direction way more than it maybe is done in China. Hmm. Interesting. And then, so basically you had such an amazing culture shock that you thought, hmm, I need to dig deeper into it and got yourself into a Chinese MBA. Correct, correct. So, ba <laughs> so basically, after graduating from Asian studies, I must say my Chinese was not good enough. So I still had to really work on that part of improving my Chinese. At the same time, I really wanted to also uh, fulfill my other dream and really learn more about entrepreneurship and business. So uh, yes, I got a scholarship and I moved to Xiamen for a two-year program. And when I was applying, I was thinking it's going to be more like 50% English, 50% Chinese, but surprise, surprise, it was more like 80% Chinese and 20% English, uh, which is also, again, a very interesting experience. 20% and, English or Chinglish? Like, uh, were there foreigners teaching you? Or uh, so mostly everyone was Chinese. I think mm -hmm. we had two professors that were international. And also considering the fact that out of 60 students, we were three internationals, often the English spoken classes were the PPT slides were in English, but then the, the, the lecture was still in Chinese. So it was a mixed match of like both of the languages a lot. But again, it was a very interesting experience to really study business from a perspective of Chinese national. And it's particularly, I always say, one of my favorite classes was negotiation skills. Uh, like uh, just um, we had to negotiate every grade that we got through the class. So, for example, there would be a task, half the class has to sell a house, another half has to buy a house. And so, like, everyone who sells the house for the highest price would get the highest grade. Wow. And everyone who would purchase the <laughs> house for the lowest would also get the highest grade. So, and, and of course, this negotiation was all happening in Chinese. And you have to really consider here uh, the communication skills about how Chinese think when they want to negotiate. And it was a great experience, and um, I'm really feeling blessed that I actually um, survived the whole two-year program. <laughs> it was not easy. It was not easy. You describe now the, how the Chinese consumer would take this discussion. What, 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 how do you have to look at this differently to be able to get a higher grade? Uh, uh, well, like, so 
literally because I had the same education they did, I don't think I looked that differently at the whole situation, right? Like we were always thinking, what is the target that we want to get there? And like, of course, there was always we were announcing a higher price than what we we're selling for, giving, looking at all different benefits that we could pitch in as well. And, and, and like, this is for me how negotiation works. So like, I'm very Asian in that part. Um, but that's also something I'm always teaching my Latvian companies when they're going for negotiation, that it's a process that you have to understand. And, and in the West, it's, 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 it's often neglected or it's short, much shorter. It's somebody offers and this is what somebody gives me. In Asia, it's a whole process. I think that it's really, we work with friends. So first you need to become friends. So it's very interesting how that would be applied in a university structure, mm -hmm. because there are many stories of um, professors who gave a grade for finding new friends on WeChat. Mm -hmm. Maybe you mm -hmm. know the stories. Um, so whoever makes the biggest amount of connections, that's the person who gets the highest grade. Mm. So I wonder how was that explored in the university? I think in general, actually, our MBA was trying to be very practical. Like mm -hmm. we did a lot of simulations. We went to a lot of companies. We mm -hmm. every cool. it, it was really practical and, and really interesting. So I was really enjoying the, the whole education system was actually quite interesting. And I would have never had this particular experience anywhere else in the world. Mm. And also improved significantly my Chinese knowledge. <laughs> and then you wrote the master's thesis in Chinese, is that right? Uh, correct. Um, what did you do? What did you learn? Well, actually, so my master's thesis was not so much only about the language. I was really rather focusing on the content that I was delivering. And so my master's thesis were focusing on what Latvian uh, cosmetic manufacturing companies uh, should do in order to enter more successfully Chinese market. And I was, again, very strategical about it. There were a lot of Latvian uh, uh, cosmetic manufacturers. And in general, some of them were looking at the China market back then. So I thought, okay, A, this is an interesting topic. I'm a, I'm a female. I like cosmetic products. Uh, and, and, and I really wanted to dig deeper into what the company, what the current companies are doing and maybe how they could improve their strategies. And this is also actually how I ended up having my first job, uh, through this thesis because I was interviewing a lot of companies back at home. And, and, um, and for a while I was also working working in a cosmetic manufacturing company that was exporting products to China. Was there any interesting findings that uh, you uncovered during your research? Um, so now I don't feel like they're that interesting for okay. me. That's just common knowledge. But That's I guess for some, <laughs> and for sure, in 10 years, a lot of things have changed, right? But I feel like for a lot of European companies, we always assume, well, uh, French cosmetics is the best type of cosmetics that everyone is uh, looking forward to purchasing. Then in China, you realize, hey, it's not that. It's people look towards Korean cosmetics as higher quality rather than French or European Union brands. Uh, also, of course, it's what, what people are looking for. It's like, uh, you know, we want to be tanned and in China, people want to be, have a white and fair skin. It's just people are looking for a different sort of product. And as a cosmetic manufacturing company, if you're really targeting China market, you should really consider that packaging as well, how it looks, right? You know, what colors to choose, what fragrances to choose. It differs quite a lot, actually. Okay. So then. For some reason, you didn't stay in the cosmetics company. And yeah, you I didn't. You went to become the head of China operations for another foreign company. Maybe you share a bit about that. Correct. For <laughs> for some time, I was working for the cosmetic company, and then later, I I moved to a different company, which is a translation company. And um, so it was one of the very few Latvian companies back then who actually established a Wufi here in China, so a fully owned foreign enterprise. And uh, and I, I, I another reason why I wanted to move was I was in Latvia and 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 I really wanted to move back to China, so that that was a great opportunity for me. Uh, that's why I was switching also the companies. And uh, so I started as a project manager and then I later moved on as a, a country manager. So running the operations uh, for the fully owned foreign enterprise here in China. And what did you learn? So working for a translation company, you really realize how important language actually is. So, of course, by one of the reasons is because we were selling that service. But you really also see how anyone perceives uh, marketing materials or product and the language that is written on this product is just 
gives such a big importance to the service or to the product. So let's say you receive marketing materials about uh, some equipment, manufacturing equipment. And in this marketing material, there's plenty of mistakes. It's basically written in Chinese, in English. And, and directly you as a reader will never take the company seriously. You just, if they don't, can't make the marketing material right, how are they going to manufacture the product right? So we directly have this really bad sense of the product or of the company. They're not taking it seriously. And for Western brands, we have to understand that goes also other way around. If you're not serious about how you present your product or service to a Chinese consumer, they also see that either it's written in English, you you weren't even putting in any effort, or it's in bad written Chinese. And, and you, you just can't see that the service or the product is serious enough, right? So I think that's a very important thing when uh, companies are doing international trade, um, really, really to consider that. And there's also something that we, you showed me that presentation. I think we discussed that also in the episode that we recorded when Western, they want to do their pitch and it's less is more. Just mm-hmm. try to do pictures and some headers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then for China, it's basically as many pictures, as many certificates, as many information as possible to justify that it's a qualified brand. Right. And that's a different story when it comes to like cross-border e-commerce or shopping online, because there's so many fake goods in China that the Chinese client is just requiring so much more information, really seeing the factory, really seeing where it comes from, what the ingredients are. And the Chinese clients are, yes, way, way more. Um, they really want to research it because they've had so many bad experiences. True. Very, very true, Simon. Mm. I think also for me, I see that the Chinese, especially after the pandemic, they are becoming very picky with who they want to work with. And uh, it requires a certain amount of stamina, resilience mm-hmm. and determination mm-hmm. to work with China. Yes. And so this is the least you can do. Mm-hmm. I always say uh, that like doing business in China is all, almost like forming a marriage. Like before you get married, you normally want to date a person, get to know a person, trust a person, get on the same level with a person. And in Chinese business is similar. Like they really want to know who are they working with, that they can really trust this person, that that person is still going to be around in a year or two. And that's when they're really willing to do the business. Yeah, especially after last year, I saw a lot of foreign companies just leave all the problems in China and move back to wherever they came from and never pick up the phones or deal with the mess. Mm -hmm. So really now I think the filter is on. Like it's not so easy anymore. I Um, really see both sides of like working with Latvian companies coming into China. I really see the both stories. Like I see the Chinese being worried that the foreign companies might just screw you over at the same time in foreign countries companies are also very worried who their partners are and and there's there's a, a truth to both sides and then uh, yeah. it's it's quite in- interesting to be always in the middle of the both situations <laughs> interesting so and then you said one day you found the the job of your dreams just looking at the application form maybe you can share about that Correct. So um, after working for a while in a private sector, I saw uh, that Investment and Development Agency of Latvia was looking for a representative in China. And I really realized that like, as a Latvian national, I have this great experience of working for a Latvian company exporting to China, working for a business in China, studying in China, having a business network in China that I could really, really contribute to my own country and to my own economy and help Latvian companies. And I felt it's, it's you know, it was suddenly my dream job uh, was available and, and I was really excited to apply for it. And and thank God I also got it. <laughs> thank God or thank, thanks to my skills, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> well, congratulations. And I think um, me and Simon just had a conversation talking that maybe 10 years ago when we just came to China, people like you in the positions of commercial representatives of different countries, they were quite u- useless because they didn't have the the experience required. They didn't have the knowledge about China required. So I think the situation has changed a lot. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, definitely. And I think it's due to the fact that it's very complex to run a business or to be active in China that you also feel like, 
I want to do more than just running my own company. I actually want to contribute to be able to help com- companies from your country to settle here or find a positioning or get them introduced. So recently I see more and more support officers or country agencies or consulates that are hiring people that have actual experience with doing business in China. And that's super important to be able to provide the support that's necessary, the network that's necessary. In your case, I think you're a great example to show that agencies and, and country offices are can be of value when someone wants to learn more or know more or get better connected into the market itself. For, my, for myself, it's the same. Yeah. Mm, and Kurt. I think many people don't know that about commercial representatives of countries, that they're actually very cool people. And you can sit down and have a chat with them about your problems and they will be willing to help you. So I think that's the main reason why I chose you to be my first uh, uh, guest of honor into China Business Cast, because I think there needs to be a more light sh- sh- shining on, on what your job actually is. And, um, yeah, so the next question I have is, um, what does it mean actually to be a commercial representative of a country in China? Because you hold an MBA, you just turned 30, and I'm sure you're one of the youngest people in any rooms where you need to hold negotiations, represent <laughs> a country, um, represent companies. I, I don't know. How does it feel on a personal level? Uh, so yeah, when I became uh, economic and commercial counsel, I was only 27 and, wow. um, and I was female, but I've never still seen, uh, and I still, but, um, I've never seen like prejudice from Chinese counterparts in terms of like the fact that I'm female or the fact that I'm young, as long as you come at a table and you're having a, you know, you're well prepared, you know what you're doing there. Uh, I've never seen any, any issues there on a, on a personal level. Of course, I feel a lot of satisfaction of seeing Latvian companies enter China, seeing some results done. It's like a very patriotic thing that you can do for your country. And it's also so much fun. Like my working day is never exactly the same. Like, uh, you know, it's, it is a lot of, um, giving speeches and introducing Latvia. It's, it's a lot of going to factories, seeing how business is happening here in China. It's a lot of also organizing events, organizing conferences, organizing webinars. It is very diverse. So I never get bored. I'm always excited to, you know, do my job, think of different ways how I can help my country. Uh, it's not always just all glamorous diplomatic, uh, job. Like there are times where, uh, we have to deal with construction sites for CIAE or we're doing pop-up stores. And I have to be in a, you know, probably in a sports suit at like four in the morning, cleaning some uh, pop-up store and making sure all the media is there on time and making sure all the products are there on time, change quickly into a pretty dress and give a speech afterwards. You know, it's, 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 it's quite intense, but yeah, it's never boring. So what will be the pitch <laughs> of Latvia? Because our listeners are global mm-hmm. and probably... Not everyone is very familiar with Latvia itself, the country. Mm-hmm. And as you're pitching to Chinese, your country, how yeah. would you pitch it here to our audience? So it depends for what I would be pitching, whether for like as an investment destination or for, for as a startup country. But in general, well, Latvia is a, it's a very, very small country, but though it's small, it really does have a lot to offer. And, uh, there's not a lot of people that live there, but they're really, uh, hardworking and, and, um, really focused on work and results and and like our labor force is one of the key backbone to any industry and it's just like how our economy is working and a latvia has less than two million people and we still have so many olympic medals that we've achieved we have great opera singers we have innovations that we've developed that are you know uh in 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 top-notch companies used and 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 so so i'm really proud of uh coming from such a small country i always think it's exotic and interesting and uh, once the covid situation improves i do advise you to you know look it up in the map where's latvia and <laughs> book a ticket and go there for a holiday <laughs> they can come to you for advice on where to go absolutely <laughs> absolutely yeah you can connect with me on linkedin and i'm always happy to share Leah 
administrates a lot of websites. We have Invest in Latvia. We have a startup in Latvia for people who want to start up their business in Latvia. Actually, we're also ranking is a very good environment for startups. There's a special startup law and a startup visa where people can actually um, open their own startups and it's quite good taxes and a good environment ecosystem. So there's a lot of opportunities in Latvia that people might not always necessarily know. So we have a lot of websites that explain you about these opportunities. Awesome. <laughs> I love how you just switch to your working mode like, <laughs> in an instant and you can just promote your country. Anytime, like... anytime with my heart. <laughs> yes, it's, it's something I can do while I sleep, while I'm yeah, in yeah, any yeah, condition, condition. correct. <laughs> but I think um, what we were talking about before is um, one thing is to promote uh, Latvia to Chinese companies, but another thing is to promote China in Latvia because your job also revolves around bringing awareness of opportunities in China to the Latvian companies. Correct. And I think the difference between Holland, Lithuania, where I come from, and Latvia is that uh, Dutch companies have like history mm-hmm. of working with China. There are traditions that um, last for hundreds of years. And actually, it was only um, because the Chinese interests in understanding the world that Lithuania and Latvia got put on a map. And that's how Lithuanian and Latvian companies found out that there are opportunities in China. So when I was doing my master's thesis in uh, diplomacy, <laughs> it was an economic diplomacy, I also did interviews with like um, maybe 100 stakeholders and... Um, what some of the people said it was that it was Chinese driven the interest in our countries, and firstly it was China go global policy, and only later uh, sixteen plus one, which now is seventeen plus one, which is Central Eastern European countries plus China, a new platform got created to make awareness of this region, how this exists and why this exists, and how to reach those. Uh, countries and only then Lithuania realized that there is a country like China Mm -hmm. and um, started working with it. So I wonder how this transition was in Latvia and what did you see in the past 10 years Mm -hmm. in the development of the diplomatic ties but also the economic ties Mm -hmm. between the two countries. So actually this year is a big year for Latvia and China in terms of uh, diplomatic relationship. We're reaching 30 year anniversary. And again, like if you compare it with Dutch, Dutch, Dutch or a lot of other governments, it's, it's much shorter history. Um, but really, as you said, like it's the moment when China decides to really put you on the map is when you become really relevant for China. And also when it kind of became relevant for a, a lot of Latvian businesses, because before it was a, faraway market and a and a distant market and not uh not not really understanding the opportunities there so in 2016 actually we were hosting like latvia was hosting 16 plus one uh summit and that's where also lee katiang was coming to latvia and a big business delegation from china was coming to latvia and that's really the point where latvian economic uh, ties really really got closer with china there was a huge growth in uh in, in export from latvia to china and well chinese export has always been uh much higher than other way around uh but yeah that that did give a big turn in in our economic uh, collaboration for sure. That's uh, for me. That was a fascinating finding because, of course, we're so far away. Of course, we were so busy dealing with our independence, with our issues back home, that we really had no time to go out and understand what China needs from Lithuania. You know, so <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, and and honestly, still in Latvia, there's um, you know. Entering China market, you guys have been here for a long time. You know it's not an easy market. So it's still, for a lot of con- companies, it's still unclear. And it's still, um, you know, it's, 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 we still need to do a lot of education what opportunities are in uh, China. I'm still organizing a lot of webinars every month okay, to really teach different... I want uh-huh. you to talk about the checklist that you found. <laughs> what did you find that could help Latvian companies? Because... Uh, maybe the Dutch companies are at a much more mature level, mm-hmm. and, but Lithuanian are very similar. Mm-hmm. So I wonder mm-hmm. what are the daily um, 
suggestions and advice that you have to give to the companies? Right. So a lot of Latvian companies uh, write uh, emails to us and uh, consult uh, and ask some advice or questions. And, uh, and after a few years of doing my job, I realized, okay, they asked me question one and I answered this question. And often they'll make the mistake at a different point. So I just compiled all the most traditional things to consider when you work with China. And they're really basic for anyone that works with China. I think like thinking about IPR protection. But then again, in other countries, not every, like they think once your, uh, your trademark has been registered internationally, it's sufficient for China. It is not. So things like that, uh, that you really have to consider. And then anyone that's really working in China will know most of these things. But like for a company that works with all regions, because most of export managers in small countries, they don't work only with China. They will work with a couple of countries or even regions uh, or maybe even globally will work. And so they really need to understand this information. Also, like how to write contracts or uh, what things to consider when you're checking a partner in China. Uh, how does a business license look in China? You know, th- the key considerations when you're really working with China. And also it's like even such basic things as like you want to work with China, download WeChat. Like I understand <laughs> you want to work with email because this is what Western world does. But your client is in China and they're in WeChat. So if you really want to reach your client, be where the client is, right? Uh, so small things like that. Also, like thinking about your social media here. And because, again, social media's marketing is just so different in China than in the Western world. If you input a lot of resources for Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, great. But if you're focused in China, that's all blocked here. So it's not really going to help you. Small things like that. I think... Um... There are some things we know about what the diplomats do. And one of them that I know of is that you're constantly on a battle to protect the companies from their own mistakes. And um, when I was talking to you earlier, I think it was surprising that you told me that you can actually help them almost 100% of the time in some way or another, because... Um, when um, I observed uh, when working with the companies in China that sometimes a conflict that arises can be resolved by involving a governmental representative, whereas overseas it would just uh, be going to a law firm and dealing with it uh, through legal channels. Mm. But in China, sometimes it's so unclear which legal channel it is you should be dealing with, which um, municipality would be responsible for that particular contract or who would be the body to be managing this. So I think uh, that is probably something that the listeners wouldn't know, that actually it's a huge part of your work. <laughs> it's definitely a big part as well. And also you have to understand that a Chinese legal procedures are a very long, very expensive. And, and in general, how Chinese try to resolve their issues is rather through negotiation, rather through a talk. Uh, rather than directly going back to contracts. Contracts are important. Don't forget them. But it's always more advice to just negotiate your way through, talk, be human, try to find some human connection with people. And if a government calls and uh, tells a company, hey, we're looking at you guys, this is, we, we see that too. It always gives a kind of a different uh, reaction also from Chinese yeah, that was what I found in mm. researching economic diplomacy, that actually politics and economy is very, very close. Particularly business, in China, yeah, right, correct, correct, yeah. So people are very ob- obeying the, mm-hmm. the, the institutions. Absolutely. And they really have respect for it. So um, that's, I think, one takeaway. Um, maybe you can share some of the proudest achievements in China that uh, you saw Latvian companies achieve. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm really excited in general to see our products somewhere going in China and, and for again, a small country. Uh, I'm, for example, I'm really uh, happy to see, uh, there's like a grog glass company that is doing anti-reflective glass. Uh, one, actually one of the top, top notch technologies in the world. And there was a Chinese importer who was really looking for the best possible glass in the world. And they were importing a lot of different brands from around the world. And they were like, okay, grow glass is by far the best. So they have a very interesting showroom in Beijing where you can really see different types of glass. And you think glass is just a simple thing, but um, if you would really look at the pictures, the difference between if you're in a museum and you're looking at an artifact and you're seeing through a regular glass, you first see yourself. But if you look through grow glass, 
you actually see the artifact because it's anti-reflective glass. It's basically invisible. And also it's a much more stronger material. If there's an earthquake or some sort of a situation, it will not instantly collapse, it will not become almost like a, like, like, like a soft material. It will stay solid no matter what. So things like that. So like grog glass material is now in top notch Chinese museums, like Forbidden City, China National Museum, Suzhou Museum. So I'm always happy to go to Chinese museums and like, oh, okay, this, this, the, the most expensive artifacts are often behind grog glass. Um, if you go to Shanghai Disneyland and there's a show of where Jack Sparrow is fighting with pirates and then suddenly he starts flying, that's an aerodium wind tunnel. So again, that's Latvian technology. And they were, they came to China in 2010 during the World Expo. And, uh, since then they have a few uh, wind tunnels here. Uh, also if you go to Daxing Airport in, in Beijing, uh, so, uh, Latvian paint was being used in the Dasing airport, uh, reconstruction. So I think some interesting and good projects have happened in the last few years in China. So I'm proud to see that. Awesome. I think, um, what you're saying is that, uh, the more niche the product is and the more problem solving mm-hmm. aspects yeah. it has, the better it will perform in China. Absolutely. Because Latvia, we cannot manufacture mass manufacturing for a cheap price. This is not going to be our angle. Like we can't do cheap shoe manufacturing and export to a massive market, but niche products that are very unique. That's where we excel. I think um, that leads me to another question is how much the country of origin matters when you start selling to China. And this I would like to open to Simon as well, because I think that's where we bypass the identity of a country when you have something that solves a problem and that is very niche that targets the, that particular situation. Um, so I'm just wondering how do you think it, uh, it is different when you're representing Holland, when you're representing Latvia or Lithuania um, yeah. in business in China? A global understanding of Chinese, Chinese consumers or Chinese in general are looking at a country more for what is it known for? When I'm in a taxi, I say I'm from the Netherlands, they would know uh, soccer, football. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they will know, normally they know more about uh, milk powder or cheese or windmills. These are the most common things that come up. And it goes for every country. There will be one, at least one, sometimes more categories that will be known to a Chinese. Sometimes categories you wouldn't even expect that it would reach them. Mm-hmm. This is very interesting. And that's also what the Chinese consumer behavior will be very much focused. If I'm going to buy, you already mentioned cosmetics, you need to mm-hmm. go from France mm-hmm. or it needs to come from Korea. Mm-hmm. Or in case of wine, we were trying to promote Italian wine, which doesn't make sense for a Chinese consumer because wine needs to come from France as well. Mm-hmm. So those kind of perspectives is sometimes difficult to break, break through mm-hmm. on how to let Chinese consumers relate to a product differently and in combination with the heritage. Netherlands is, is definitely known for like milk powder and cheese. And, and these are not the easiest products to bring, to bring into the, to the country as well. And then, of course, sports, logistics and trading. These are the things that most people come up with. But that's, that stereotype to be aware. What is my country known for will definitely help to promote your product in the right angle? Mm-hmm. Because then you will leverage on what is known and then you build on top of that. I think you had a Lithuania sports basketball was a big thing that also will help reach the audience and then you move on to a different angle as well. Yeah, I noticed that people don't want to use it to the extreme. So it will be we did a research on Mexican identity last year and we found that it was Chinese brands that use Mexican identity to the utmost. So there are all the sombreros, all the mustache, all the beautiful mm-hmm. mariachis mm-hmm. and, you know, all the gangsters, like uh, even dogs in, in the form of a gangster where they sell some kind of Mexican flavored salsa chips. Mm-hmm. So they really have no shame in using all of those stereotypes to sell. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But then Lithuania, we feel like, oh, but this is just basketball, you know. Um, and I'm actually selling, you know, milk. So 
I have nothing to do with basketball, but actually in China, it's wrong, right? Like- absolutely. I think China would tr- absolutely buy because, uh, yeah. A, Lithuanians drink a lot of Lithuanian milk that right. g- makes them really tall and right. then they essentially play really well basketball, right. right? So it's like if or, you actually brand it correctly, it could be a great story. Or um, Lithuanian ladies use natural Lithuanian products and that's why they're so pretty. <laughs> exactly, because this is, this is a very Latvian story because right. uh, everyone in China knows that the racial in Latvia between men and women right, is right. opposite than yeah. in China. We have more women than men. And, also and, in and the politics. Really, and <laughs> in the politics as well, our ambassador is female, right? And and, and also uh, we used to have a president female. Right. And, and and also like there's a lot of pretty girls. Like if you type, type Latvia in, in Baidu, that's what you get a lot. And, and that's again something we're never comfortable of using. Right. But probably we could potentially be using why Latvian women are so beautiful because we use Latvian cosmetics. They're standard there's Madara, there's so many great brands but uh yes it depends like how okay we are you with these stereotypes and how willing you're to use them i remember um, i was born in soviet union so um, at that time we had one option of milk we had one option of soda water and now when you go to a shop there is a whole like row of uh, different soda options uh, coca-cola coke diet coke i don't even know because i don't drink it but <laughs> mm-hmm. basically for chinese consumers it's the same suddenly the market has everything on offer and the consumers who have traveled they usually go to about six countries in 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 europe and so they know france because they already have some kind of familiar association and it was very interesting uh, for me to talk to a client from Lithuania who said that actually the best-selling chocolate product that they had had an Eiffel Tower on their packaging. Because when people go and they see the shelf that is full of products, they don't have the time to go through all the information about those products and they don't yet know how to choose what is the right way of chocolate, what they like. And so that indication of an Eiffel Tower um, gave them the clue how to choose out mm-hmm. of all the potential Because they know it. Because they feel this is somehow familiar. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so if we, our small countries, uh, could identify what feels familiar to Chinese, I think we would be doing much better. Mm-hmm. I agree. But for now, um, I think we can do very well in the niche. Mm-hmm. Markets. Mm-hmm. And I mean, amber is pretty famous from our region. Yeah. I think for amber is where, where like Chinese mostly put us. Like also surprisingly, they know a lot of the Riga black balsam, heiaojiu. Mm-hmm. For them, that's also something they really link Latvia to. Awesome. I think another aspect of your job, which is very interesting, is um, that you get to represent Latvia on so many different aspects. Mm. So you kind of need to be somehow familiar with so many different industries and um, how does that feel? I mean it's interesting and a struggle at the same time for sure because you're always learning so many aspects companies uh, you know um, in my daily work I sometimes spend a Wednesday Thursday in a pharmaceutical conference and a Saturday Sunday in a pallet conference it's a very different crowd and it's a very different focus that you have to um really get into and understand uh, the the situation I also know the people uh, but at the same time it's also very exciting like every day is learning and it's uh you know bettering yourself evolving and it's 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 fun so um just to wrap up mm-hmm. the part of um your work and then i will ask you how you came back to china last mm-hmm. year during the pandemic <laughs> um, i want to ask you simon did you ever work with the consulate or a, a person such as agnes in your time in china and was it helpful at all i did work with the dutch consulate particularly shanghai the embassy is in beijing and then there's a consulate in, in shanghai and in guangzhou and they've been extremely helpful not just from a business sense, but more from getting set up, getting introduced. So we had a non-profit organization, uh, DigiDutch, to help uh, people sell online, help companies to sell online in China. And there was a cooperation of seven small enterprises, Dutch-related, who had didn't really have a strong platform to express themselves because you have to compete with the big players like Alibaba, Jingdong. How are you going to stand out and make yourself known to an audience? Not just for the Netherlands, but... Globally, and then we also use like Dutch 
can be communication languages, technology. It is also one of the things that we can stand out in as a community. And then we think, okay, how can we position that? And then the Dutch consulate helped us a lot with getting ourselves launched with the presence of the prime minister, getting ourselves on the stage when the king visited Alibaba campus and we were the host there, which is very impressive. And it was not be something that we would be able to accomplish by ourselves as individual companies. So by teaming up with seven companies, doing what they're doing, we were able to get an exposure and a platform that was provided by the Dutch consulate. In that sense, I think it's great. When it comes to execution, there's no one to blame than us if it doesn't work, because that's not their role. The role of the consulate was not how to make this community or your initiative work. That's that's on us. So that's something that is very important to realize that they help you to get positioned, they help you get exposed. And then you have to do it yourself. And whenever you are in trouble or you need support, you need advice, of course, you can reach out to that. But it can it can help open up uh, doors during delegations, during events. So for me, it's been quite useful. And I think a lot of people underestimate the value it can be and how things can be speed up and how the network can help you to reach an audience that would not be available for you. We, I recently, uh, last year, we got a introduction from the Netherlands support office introduced us to a distributor in Guangzhou and the support office was in Nanjing introduced us to someone who knew someone in Guangzhou and they are now signed with us as a, as a distributor as a company I would never identify myself which is uh, amazing and, and you just explained as well Agnes the different niche that you're touching are so in-depth that that has such a small industry and players that are hidden for most individuals or companies who want to be present, that is very valuable to be able to reach out to them. And maybe that's the answer is no, but why, why not give it a try? I think I really liked another story that you shared is that um, actually the Chinese companies, they're more willing to reach out because they know how difficult it is to bring a Latvian product to the market. And uh, when you were working on some project, you found that there were different distributors who were working on different Latvian products and you kind of introduced them to each other and helped them promote the products in the same marketing way, or maybe you can share this more. Yeah. So basically, yes, uh, A, we're getting a lot of requests also from other side where Chinese are actually trying to understand and uh, find products. And we're introducing like to Chinese importers, a uh, local companies, uh, depending on their needs. Another thing we are also trying to let these importers uh, collaborate throughout themselves. Let's say an importer number one is importing water, importer number two is importing oatmeal, and reporter number three is importing fish cans from Latvia. And then they realized, hey, my distribution channel could also take up those other products. And they really started to collaborate because they were in different cities. They had different uh, different distribution channels and they were helping each other. So they kind of formed like a small little like WeChat group alliance, uh, pushing each other's business. So it's, it's often abroad. You don't understand what the importers on the ground have to do to make your product important. Uh, because as a manufacturer, you really understand how difficult it is to manufacture. And then you think about where do you find your client. But once you get your client, you're like, okay, well, now it's the client's job of entering the market. And and in China, it's really not easy for also importers that are particularly not very big of getting these products on the ground, making them, uh, you know, uh, reliable and that people recognize them. Yes, I think that was a big uh takeaway for me from talking to you that actually you as a institution could help um, facilitate these business connections yeah. and provide support in teaching them how to appropriately present mm. Latvia as mm. a country of origin. Mm. Um, yeah. So to wrap up, I think one of the most fascinating stories you have is um, that you actually experienced quarantine both in China and in Latvia, and you were able to come back um, and travel from Latvia to China amidst the most difficult time when all the borders and all the planes um, were were closed. Maybe oh. you share I, yeah, a bit I, I, about last that. last year was pretty much I was a champion of the quarantines. I did uh, two in <laughs> Latvia and two in China. It, it was a great like literally two months of my life we were spent in quarantines. 
in one of the wildest, uh, but I think not only for me, I think for anyone who is an international, it's been a big struggle because essentially at some point you were stuck somewhere where maybe you were not supposed to be. You were stuck for six months in India. Uh, so, which is again, not a country you live in, right? It was just very random. Um, and so for me, I was also stuck in Latvia during a time when literally every country was under a lockdown. Uh, but I really had to get back into China. I had to do some work here also related to uh, personal equipment uh, sourcing and helping our government. So um, it literally took me two cars, uh, one ferry ride and three airplanes to get back to China, which is something in 2018. No one would have like imagined that a journey from Latvia to China will require this many vehicles. And it literally took me more than, I think, 35 hours. Also at the arrival point in Shanghai, they asked you, where have you been in the last 14 days? And I listed six different countries. They were like, no, 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 you didn't understand in the last 14 days. I'm like, these are six countries I've been in the last 48 hours. So it, it was a quite of a experience. Also the quarantine itself. Um, it's just a very different story here in China, how the quarantine is happening. You know, everyone greets you with hazmat suits. You're stuck in a hotel room for 14 days where most of the cases you can't even open windows. So there's no fresh air. Uh, you receive the hotel food and, um, it's, it's, it's quite of an experience. I think for the rest of my life, I'll remember. So it was very different in Latvia where you could, you did not have such strict uh, measures. And how do you compare what, uh, because you have experience living in China and you know why people do what they do. And I'm sure a lot of uh, people who don't live in China and have not realized the workings of the system, they will have a different perception. And I think you were telling that a lot of people were following your Instagram mm. um, and uh, live streaming yeah. where you were sharing what is happening and why. And uh, I wonder if there is something that you would like people to know about. The I mean, difference. I think this is a big debate that is happening in general, like about giving up your freedoms. There's a lot of uh, freedoms that people in US or Europe are not willing to give up. And because they're not willing to give up these freedoms, there's basically this never ending process of like never ending lockdowns and things that are happening in China. People were willing to give up their freedoms in terms of like for three months, people really were at home. And then every time you come in China, you have to give so many tests, like one at airport, one after your quarantine. Sometimes now it's even four, four tests. Now quarantines in Beijing are like up to 28 days. We're willing to give up those freedoms. But then when we're in the country, we have a lot more freedom of movement, freedom of going to art exhibitions, concerts, restaurants. So it's, it's a very different approach how governments have done. In Europe, it probably would have not been maybe possible. Um, and I think, yeah, I mean, we see the result like uh, it's quite different. Yeah, but still, um, today's the last day before the Chinese New Year, and I don't have any travel plans. I don't know. No, I actually, you. most of most, I was having yesterday dinner with uh, with uh, four of my friends that were Chinese, and no one is actually traveling anywhere. Um, so government is really trying to encourage not to travel, and and people are actually willing to take the advice. It's not a strict rule that you're not allowed to travel, right? But I it's made inconvenient, um, right? You have to have a test. You have to potentially quarantine if something goes wrong somewhere. Um, yeah. I think the biggest uh, surprise for me was when uh, we had uh, one or two new cases in Shanghai and overnight all the people suddenly put on the masks by themselves. Nobody I, enforced it. I even have uh, people at my gym uh, in a hazmat suit measuring temperature <laughs> because there were two cases in a 26 million city. Uh, <laughs> so definitely the approach here is a little different to what was happening in, in Europe when a couple cases were uh, breaking out. Yeah. And also, yeah, my quarantine experience was very different. Like it was way more liberal. We were, we, we had to be at home, but we could take walks and uh, it was very different than in China. Okay. And so the last question is, what is something you would like the world to know about China? <laughs> I think this is a really difficult question. I think everyone who comes to China for like a week comes back home and is always a China expert that gives so much advice on how China works and how it's really here. Uh, but I feel like the longer time you spend in China, the, the more difficult it is to give a real 
good summary about it because once I make any statement, I can contradict myself in the next statement because China is just really so diverse. Looking at like uh, rural, uh, like small towns, fourth tier cities up to Shanghai, Beijing, uh, west to east is so different, uh, north to south. Also, in depending on, 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 on the background and education of the people, it's just really, really diverse. I think the only thing that is really consistent in China is the change. Um, the, the, the rapidness of the change is just, uh, insane for anyone abroad. Things just change so rapidly here and you have to be constantly like willing to accept it and move on and change and, and just embrace it. Well, I think it was very exciting having you and uh, thank you, Simon, for allowing me to become a co-host. Um, I think for me, being from a small country as well, it is a pleasure to introduce my country because usually I'm the first person they meet. Correct. And Same. it really depends on the impression you make, how that person will forever perceive your country. So I'm really happy to give an opportunity for you to present yourself and Latvia because you are a Latvian representative um, and allow the listeners to understand what Latvia is and what opportunities is um, through your personal experience. So thank you for that. And it's been very interesting for me. Thank you, Lean and Simon, for giving me a chance to be here today. I hope my experience uh, might be relevant to someone and the story was a uh, interesting to someone and uh, feel free to also connect with me if uh, you know have any additional questions How about Latvia or about Latvia exactly <laughs> well, thank you so much ladies we will put some notes uh, in, the, in the show notes the contacts of both uh, Lina and Agnese that will be cool you can reach out to them they will be available to answer your questions follow this channel follow our podcast and leave a comment or a question if you want to know more or you want to be a guest or you know someone well thanks that's it for now Thank you all, and I'll see you on the next one. Doing business in China is a complex world. You can quickly feel alone and lost in its maze. But don't worry, China Business Cast is here for you. Sign up for our newsletter and regular updates on our website at www.chinabusinesscast.com. Thanks for tuning in.